The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 12th Doctor story, Heaven Sent. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Uh, folks, be sure to get your very own Secrets of Doctor Who t-shirt or phone case or more. We have lots of different uh, things you can purchase by visiting sqpn.com slash merch, and you'll find our special, uh, unique artwork for the Secrets of Doctor Who on various things there. Uh, stick around to the end of the show. We have more of your great listener feedback, and it's including a very special one. I mean, it's all special, but there's a special one there I want to preview. and Extra uh, special. Extra special. That's right. And I also want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. And you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at mysterious.fm. So uh, we are talking about this episode of Doctor Who, Heaven Sent. The first part of what's kind of a two-parter, but not really. Um, or the middle part of a three-parter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really kind of is. Uh, so, Jimmy, could you give us a recap of what happens in this one? This week, fresh from watching Clara Oswald die by facing the Raven, the Twelfth Doctor materializes wherever the Time Lords wanted him to go. He finds himself in an empty, shape-changing circular castle in the middle of an immense ocean. The castle also has a single veiled figure known as the Veil that's based on the Doctor's nightmares. The Doctor seems to know that if the Veil touches him, it will kill him. Using a mental image of the TARDIS and a mental image of Clara that he doesn't see face-to-face, the Doctor starts reasoning his way out of the situation. One of the things he learns is that the rooms of the castle eventually reset to their original condition from when he first arrived. He also discovers that he can temporarily stop the veil by confessing important truths he has never told before. Among the things he reveals is that the real reason he originally left Gallifrey wasn't because he was bored, it was because he was scared. He eventually determines that the situation has been set up to get him to reveal what he knows about the hybrid, a prophesied entity thought to be half Dalek, half Time Lord, but he draws the line at this and will not reveal what he knows. However, by this point, the Doctor has found a a crystalline wall with the word home written on it. Only the wall is 400 times harder than diamond because, of course, it is. Mm -hmm. And since the Doctor won't reveal what he knows about the hybrid, the veil touches him and fatally injures him. Using the last of his strength, he crawls back to the transporter room, which should have reset itself to the condition it was in when he first arrived. That means it should have his pattern in the transporter buffer, and he uses the last of his regeneration energy to power the transporter before he fades and becomes a skeleton. A new copy of the Doctor then materializes and begins living the same events over again. So we're now in a time loop story, only instead of involving actual time travel, it's all because of the transporter clones of the Doctor. We're given to understand that the events are taking place over and over again over an immense period of time, but with each cycle, the Doctor manages to do a tiny amount of damage to the 400 times harder than Diamond Wall by punching it, and the wall conveniently doesn't reset itself to its original condition. Eventually, he punches his way through it and escapes the Veil. He emerges on the planet Gallifrey, and it turns out that all his confessions were because the castle world was inside his confession dial. He's now mad at the Time Lords and sends them a message that he's returned. He also tells them that they're wrong about the hybrid being half Dalek. Instead, he says that the hybrid that is destined to conquer Gallifrey and stand in its ruins is me. The end. (laughs) So, Father Corey, uh, impressions? You know, this is this is one of these episodes that I liked about three quarters of it. And the three quarters I liked of it is the whole problem solving, the doctor trying to figure everything out and going through the castle and, you know, trying to you get it, it seemed like if you remember the game missed things like that, you know, those kind of puzzle solving games where you had to collect items and figure things out. And eventually, you know, you win the games by doing things in the right step. And so I like that part of it, that that first part of it where he's, you know, especially when it's his 
first run through, at least that we see, you know, of course it re- it's revealed that it isn't the first run through that, that happened, but he goes through and he's doing all these figuring things out and going and doing that. And then as soon as the wall is revealed, that's where I'm like, yeah, I'm done with this episode. <laughs> you know, like, like Jimmy mentioned, you know, okay. Yeah. You've got the 400 times, you know, ha- harder than diamond wall that he's going to punch through over the course of 2 billion years. And somehow this wall doesn't reset. That's right. where I'm just like, I'm this, this, that's where this episode goes off the rail. In my opinion. How about you, Jimmy, your overall impression? Well, this episode is widely regarded uh, highly in Doctor Who fandom. There are a lot of fans who just love, 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 love this episode. And then they hate, 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 hate the one that follows it, which is called Hellbent. Mm-hmm. And I don't have such extreme feelings regarding the two of them. I don't super love this one. It's not that I find it objectionable. Um it's okay, uh, but I, I'm not in love with it. Um, and like other Doctor Who episodes, it does have flaws. I particularly don't like the diamond wall. Mm-hmm. It, the, it's 400 times harder than diamond. That's a, I, I, I view that as a cheap writing trick uh, to make it sound all the more impressive. But what it does is it damages the plausibility. Because if you've got a fist with the density of a of a human or time lord fist i don't think you're going to do any damage to it at all by punching mm-hmm. it no matter how many billions of years go by and at least i find that um i find that not it's even if it's true that you would i find it so sketchy that it mm-hmm. pops me out of the story and i find myself thinking about a physics problem instead of thinking about the drama of the situation um it, it was it would be sufficient to and and also it it doesn't unlike anything else in the castle it doesn't magically reset mm-hmm. so there there's a there's a there's a plot hole on top of the implausibility and um so it, it would have been sufficient from a writing perspective if they had like, well, for example, if I was writing this, I might have had I might have established that the wall he finds is the exterior wall of the castle. And that's why it doesn't reset. It's not like the contents of the castle. I would have given us a reason why it doesn't reset. And I wouldn't have made it super hard. It just as hard as brick would be perfectly sufficient and, um, you know, or stone or something like that. But because he's Stephen Moffat has to ramp it up to the to 11. <laughs> um, it creates plausibility problems. And, and I find myself thinking about these side issues instead of what he wants me to be thinking about, which is how dramatic it is. The doctor's doing this. If he had just scaled it down, then I would have been able to go, wow, the doctor's doing something really impressive here. But he had to he had to go for super extra max, whatever. And it it damages the story. But that's, you know, a flaw that's confined to part of the story. It's not the whole story. And the whole story is okay. You know, I don't love it, but I don't hate it either. It's an okay story. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, I liked it more the first time I watched it, you mm-hmm. know, back when it originally aired. And uh, I think part of that was because I didn't know all that was coming. And mm-hmm. knowing it felt I got kind of a little bored, actually, just by the it was moody and atmospheric and there wasn't a lot actually going on. The veil was no longer creepy. I mean, the creepiness of the veil kind of stems from the lack of knowing what it is Mm -hmm. and just finding out that the whole thing is knowing ahead of time that the whole thing is whatever's going on inside the confession dial, whether it's an actual passage of time or not, it, it's, it sapped some of that from me. So the story is best when you don't know what's happening, which is like a lot of stories. I'll grant you. I do like it's moody, it's atmospheric, the doctor alone with his mind palace and his imagining mm-hmm. his need to talk to a companion, you know, which is we, why the doctor always has companions. He has this need to talk to someone about what's going on. I like that. Um, an, an additional implausibility besides punching his way through an adamantine wall or whatever it is. Um, is As the fact Bantium. That, yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. Sounds familiar. Um, it It's also the idea that the doctor would go through, make the exact same steps on each loop. 
you know, that he would go through the same logical conclusions and make the same decisions every... Is the doctor that predictable that he would do the same thing every single time? It just felt pushing the plausibility somewhat. I can kind of give him a pass. Uh, I mean, I the thought occurred to me, would the doctor really do all the same things without variation every single time? But I can kind of give him a pass on that, um, in part because... He, he, at least in certain situations, I am quite predictable. I have a friend on the East Coast who will call me periodically. I've mentioned this before. He'll call me periodically and have some theological or moral question and say, what do you think about this? And I'll I'll start and I won't remember ever having discussed it before, but mm-hmm. I will start talking about it and reasoning my way through it. And I give him an answer and he says, good, because that's just what you told me five years ago. so it's kind of like if you're working the math problem you're likely to run the same steps and get to the same answer i guess yeah although the other part that gets me is the as as you pointed out the immense amount of this period span of time you know the billions of years well they i can't hold that against this episode because they all they say in this episode it's been going on for more than seven thousand um, they don't use billions until we get to the next episode. Yeah. Although we do get to at the yeah. point where he's noticing the stars, mm-hmm. he, the number does increment to the, to the hundreds of millions at some point, I think. Well, he does, he does say that it's been 2 billion years at one point. Oh, does he? The okay. Stars. Yeah. The last I, time yeah. he looks at the stars, he says, I, however, kind of my, my issue with that is, okay, it's in this virtual environment of the mm-hmm. confession dial, you know, 2 billion years could be, five minutes in the real world right. with, a par- with a powerful enough computer. So and, and this is time or technology. So, and so it, it really isn't 2 billion years. And why would they bother programming the stars in a confession dial to move anyway? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. There's all kinds of, yeah, all kinds of questions about it, but it's, it's as you often point out to me, it's science fantasy, not science fiction in a sense mm-hmm. where it's mm-hmm. more, I think it's all been written in order to just, convey a you know a feeling a, 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 an impression and not so much to build a solid foundation of a of a world building exercise right so and you know i i don't love that part mm-hmm. <laughs> to be honest um so it opens with this opening voiceover of the doctor you know, saying when you're born into this world, something else is born and it kind of talks about it and it it basically falls you to the end of your death and it's a second shadow uh, which kind of reminds me of the uh, death in the library thing. Mm-hmm. The uh, Vashtanarada. Yeah, the Vashtanarada. Silence in the library. Yeah, yeah, silence in the library. And, um, but it's really death, your death date, right? Like your your fate is stalking mm-hmm. you is, is what that is, right? I took it as a meaningless poeticism that Stephen Moffat wrote and thought was clever. <laughs> yeah. This okay. was a time, this was an episode that where Stephen Moffat could kind of uh, preach a little bit. Because he was through the doctor's voice as right. reasons, you know, so. Yeah, he, he, in, you know, he's famous for his dialogue and here he converts it all into a monologue yeah. because ex- except for one line that the Clara mental image has, everything is the doctor talking either in monologue or to himself or to the veil or whatever. Um, and there are some, some nice things in that monologue like when he first arrives he's talking to the time lords who you know he's not seeing but he says show me what you got i just watched my best friend die in agony my day can't get any worse let's let's see what we can do about yours (laughs) right (laughs) right. yeah (laughs) okay clever threat i like that that's nice dialogue yep yeah um yeah i mean that the the opening monologue is a bit I mean, it's uh, on the surface level. It's about the veil. I mean, that's what's going to, you know, yeah. the veil mm-hmm. never stops. It keeps stalking you, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does the veil represent? His 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 conscience? Well, no, I think the veil is is his torturer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's to get him to confess. That's what the veil is doing here. Um, and it has the threat of death if it doesn't, if if, if he won't confess, it'll kill him. Um 
they give us a basis for what the veil is. He says when he was, he says that it's taken from his nightmares, and then he explains where it comes from. Actually, before he says it's from his nightmares, he explains where it comes from. He says when he was a, a small child, there was this old woman on Gallifrey who died, and they wrapped her in a veil, and she she had all these flies and stuff like that, and the image of that stuck with him and tormented him for years. And so this is like that dead woman in her burial shroud and her burial veil coming back to haunt him and drag him to the land of the dead. Right. Mm, that's not creepy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Moffat always goes right to the, uh, the id of our nightmares, doesn't he? With the, mm-hmm. like that and the, uh, the weeping angels. Um, yeah. At what point in that, in that opening section, the doctor does say, I, the doctor am coming to find you and I will never, ever stop, which is, a little ironic given that's the veil, you know, mm-hmm. the veil mm-hmm. is coming to find him and it will never, ever stop. And I'm, you know, imagine like the torture of this, which is he, what does he say at one point? He has a maximum. If he runs from the, to the furthest corner of the castle, mm-hmm. he gets a maximum of 80 minutes or so yep. yeah. before the veil gets to him. Mm-hmm. So we can't sleep. In well, any he's, no, he says that I've got 82 minutes to sleep, eat and think. Right. Right. So he's catching little naps in there. How long do you think it is? I mean, it's spec. It's pure speculation. We don't get a time. But how long do you think he's in each loop? How many like days do you mm. think, or months? Couple of days. It, yeah. yeah, it doesn't seem like it's that long. I mean, if you think of it, if he runs runs back and forth eighty two minutes at a time, you know, and he has eighty two minutes in between. I mean, you can make a lot of loops like that in a day, right? Because that thing just shuffles back and forth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so. And he he doesn't he doesn't know how he gets there. Like so, he starts fresh from the transmat from uh, mm-hmm. a Schilder's lab or whatever that was. And so every every loop begins with him fresh. And um, and he immediately gets afraid when he sees this veiled figure, mm-hmm. which is I think is interesting because the doctor usually doesn't start seeing something and is immediately afraid. So they've the time lords have really picked something that will really get things started right off the bat as soon as the doctor sees it. And there could be other things affecting him too, like some kind of field that induces fear because we have things like that as humans. If if we're exposed to infrasound, which is sound that's too low for us to hear, it can cause a fear response in humans. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. I I think it's interesting how he explains that when, when the, when the veil stops, when he says this, this thing, uh, when it stops, he realizes it stops when he tells the truth, but then corrects himself. It's not just the truth when he confesses as in a truth he's never told before. And I think that's an interesting distinction between truth and confession. And of course, all of us being Catholic, confession has a specific meaning for us. Mm-hmm. What do you think of like this idea of the doctor confessing here? Obviously not sacramental, but the doctor being forced to confess his deepest, darkest secrets. Well, it's an interesting literary device, and he is doing that. I mean, he's previously we've had the impression that he left Gallifrey. He's given the impression that he left Gallifrey because he was bored. And that was Mm -hmm. a perfectly plausible explanation. But now he says um, he tells he says he tells the veil, I didn't leave Gallifrey because I was bored. That was a lie. It's always been a lie. And the veil kind of pauses, but doesn't fully stop. And he says, not enough. You want more? I was scared. I ran away because I was scared. Is that what you want me to say? Is that enough for you? Mm-hmm. And that's a personal revelation that is significant. That adds to the lore of the show. Yeah. Uh, what was he afraid of? Because uh, it doesn't get revealed. It, it's They're deliberately ambiguous about it. Um, yeah. But we're given to understand it, especially in light of the next episode, it may have been the prophecy of the hybrid. Right. Right. And and that that's hinted at at the end of this episode where he says, you're wrong about the hybrid being half Dalek. It's me. And mm-hmm. at least in context, we're given to understand that he's saying he is the hybrid, which would be a plausible reason he might get scared and run away. Right. right. Although I don't remember exactly, but it is the Shilda, right? 
No, they're they're deliberate. Uh, they're deliberately ambiguous about it. Off okay. camera, Stephen Moffat, they throw out next episode. They're going to throw out several possibilities for what it could be. Me is one of them because she is a hybrid. She's got that alien warrior tech in her that's keeping yep. her alive. Yep. And of course, humans are a warrior race. Um they also propose that maybe the hybrid isn't one person, and this is just Moffat getting, you know, stretching language, but maybe it's Clara and the doctor. And um, and um, Stephen Moffat has confirmed off camera that that's his interpretation of what the hmm. hybrid is. OK. Um, it's never definitive about it. They're never definitive about it. Yeah. And interestingly, and and uh, Davros, you know, earlier this season was trying the Dalek Time Lord interpretation of the hybrid. And they've also picked up on that in the current 60th anniversary um, celebration in Big Finish, where mm-hmm. they have this story called Once in Future, where the doctor during the time war gets hit with a, a, a weapon that causes him to quote-unquote, degenerate, which is flip between different Mm -hmm. incarnations. And in the seventh Doctor story uh, that they have, you know, Sylvester McCoy, when he becomes Sylvester McCoy, uh, he he gets yanked out of his time stream by the Time Lords because Davros wants to... um, wants to uh, talk to him. And Davros is, it's during the time war, Davros is is willing to switch sides and help the Time Lords, mm-hmm. but he wants to talk to the Doctor only. And so the Seventh Doctor gets pulled into it, and Davros is still on about the hybrid. And and he's got this, he, he, he and the Doctor walk through this logic of the Time Lords and the Daleks are so equally matched in this war the, and they can they both have time travel and they can both go back and endlessly subvert the past. Mm. The only way forward is by creating a hybrid. Mm. And so he he is uh, so that the hybrid, the Dalek Time Lord interpretation of the hybrid plays a big role in that audio play. Mm. Interesting. Which is a very nicely done one. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. yeah. Kind, of, kind of going back to the, the idea of the confessions, of course, you know, this is a different approach to what we think of confessions in the church. I mean, confessions is basically, you know, police confessions is more what this is. This is mm-hmm. like you know, Jim mentioned, this is torture. This is, you know, the, the, the time lords are using it to uh, get information out of the doctor. Interesting, though, you know, because when we introduced the confession dial at the beginning of the season, they said that it, it's the last will and testament of a sort. Mm-hmm. But that's not how they're using it in this. Yeah. Again, they're using it as, as a torture device, whereas a last will and testament, you would think it's something you stored a message or something like that about, you know, your your life and everything. So it, it's they've kind of flipped it on its head in this story. I I would interpret it kind of like if you've ever read uh, the Orson Scott card Ender novels, mm-hmm. um, there's one called Speaker for the Dead. Mm-hmm. And basically... And what is what? And that's a job. What a speaker for the dead does is he summarizes someone's life after they're dead as objectively and meaningfully as possible. Right. Um, and I think that's kind of the original intent behind a confession dial. It's like I'm going to give my last will and testament. I'm going to summarize my life and what was meaningful to me as in personal terms, as sincerely and honestly as possible. Um, so it's kind of like a confession in that I'm being as honest as possible here. Right. Um, but here the Time Lords are subverting it to try to extract information out of him. So I think this is an atypical use of a confession dial. Sure. Um, also, though, I have a bit of a question, and I guess if you, if you have the I'm going to be as honest as possible here thing, it kind of gives it a little justification, but Time Lord memories are all supposed to get recorded into the Matrix anyway. So what do you need confession dials for? That's true. Yeah, their cog gets uploaded into the, you know. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. The Star, perhaps, Star Trek. Perhaps, the, perhaps the, the doctor disabled that feature on the TARDIS. <laughs> yeah. He turned um, off the monitoring system. So why does the doctor not want to reveal the nature of the hybrid. Like what is he, why does he hold back this whole time? Well, if he's thinking it's him, that could be a reason. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if he's thinking it's me, it's a shoulder. I don't know why. 
Um, but the, and, and this is something else I'm kind of willing to give them. They've, they've, they've hinted that the doctor has some deep secrets that just must never be told. One of them is what his real name is. In the 11th Doctor's time, he is explaining to an alternate reality, Winston Churchill, that basically that if I ever revealed my name, terrible, terrible things would happen. And so he can never he can never reveal his true name. Mm -hmm. Um, He can only go by the doctor or Doctor Who or John Smith or something like that. Right. Right. I wonder. So so I would put this in the same category. Because I was thinking if he just told them. You know, the hybrid is me like he does at the end. Mm-hmm. He could have avoided, you know, a couple of billion years of having to punch through a <laughs> diamond wall. You know, well, I mean, it would have been over. Right. I would think. Maybe. Well, I, I wonder if there's a there's a fear that if he does reveal it to reveal that it is a shoulder um, that he's afraid that they will lead to all war between her and the Time Lords. And there'll be in another war and things like that. Because, again, the, 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 this idea of this legend is it's two warrior races. Well, that means if you have a hybrid, you know, if, you, if you've got a, a hybrid of two breeds of dogs, generally the what we call a mutt is actually generally a much stronger yeah. dog. In, in fact, that's what's known in science as hybrid vigor. Right. And so maybe that's what the doctor's afraid of, is that because she is this hybrid of this alien tech and human that she would be much stronger than the Time Lords could handle. And that's what, but she doesn't know that. Right, right. Hmm. Frankly, I, I'm, but un, I'm, un, it. I'm unimpressed <laughs> by the whole hybrid thing. I think this yeah. is the weakest season arc of Modern Who. Yeah. Um, it's, it, 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 it's not as interesting and clever as Bad Wolf or The Cracks in Time or other stuff like that. I think this Even is Timeless Child. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. Timeless Child. This is just I think this is a weak season arc. Yeah. Agreed. I agree. It's kind of a shame that they decided at some point that everything had to have a season arc and mm-hmm. not just tell stories. Like- I I don't mind having a season arc. I'm fine with the concept. Just I'd like it to be done well. And, well, yeah. and and this is this is weaker. It it builds very subtly and slowly. And what they could have done is is I mean, what they needed to do if they really wanted to do it well. Instead of trying to build the hybrid in subtly, because they try kind of try to do a bad wolf, where mm-hmm. bad wolf is in like all the episodes of the first season, but you don't notice it until the penultimate one, and then right. suddenly we get this montage of all the times we've seen bad wolf. And we realize this has been here the whole time. And that's a cool literary device. And he's kind of trying to do that here. The most explicit they get about it, they do get a little explicit about it early on with Davros in The Magician's Witch or The the Magician's Apprentice and The Witch's Familiar. Mm-hmm. Um but then it kind of fades and you forget about it. And what they what 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 they could have done is given us very early on there's this there's this time lord prophecy of this hybrid and then have a sustained build about that we after the concept is introduced we learn there's a secondary prophecy that the that has a clue about when the hybrid is going to emerge and we have an episode where that gets fulfilled and so the characters become conscious we're building towards the time of the hybrid and then and so that that early start and then followed by a build leading to a satisfying resolution would have been the way to play it. And that would have been a good season arc here. They give us an early mention, but then there's no build. You forget about it. You just get a little occasional mentions of hybrids. And then all of a sudden it, it becomes a big deal at the end. And there is no satisfying resolution because they never establish exactly what the hybrid is. That's the thing. I always, I've become very tired of the the uh, the mystery box, mm-hmm. you know that J.J. Abrams brought out with you know Lost, and, and it became very popular. This idea of the mystery box that never gets opened because if you right. open the box, it ruins everything. No, that's called telling a story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that works as a device occasionally, but it's become too common, and I just like I just I get I get, I get annoyed and frustrated with like not for example not telling well, and- the hybrid is. And in, in storytelling today, there there really can't be any secrets unless, you know, the idea that um, 
we don't know really why the doctor left Gallifrey. We don't know what his name is. We don't know um, all these things of his past and his future. And, and we can't have that. We've got to do something with it. And, and I, I like it when they be clever about it. You know, the you know, times where the doctors would be clever about his name or something like that or why he left or, you know, stuff like that or be mysterious about it. We can't do that anymore. But we have to have but, things. But then you mentioned the mystery box. That's how they try to cope for that. Right. It is weird. Yeah, because I, I don't have a problem with the doctor's name being a mystery from because it's been there from the beginning for 60 years. You know, mm-hmm. it's been a yep. thing. And I kind of hope they never reveal it because after all this time, it would, it would be a letdown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Baby Yoda uh, is much more fun than Grogu. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But on the other hand, uh, and so I, I suppose that sort of contradicts what I said about mystery boxes, but that doesn't feel like a mystery box. That's not a plot. That's just a characteristic of the doctor. Well, like a plot is you're telling stories around this idea of there being a hybrid. You got to at some point reveal what the hybrid is. Well, and this this point that now, you know, if he reveals his name, it will destroy the world or whatever, destroy the universe, whatever. Now it makes it a mystery box instead of just one of the mysterious right. elements of who he is. Right. I don't I don't yeah. mind. I don't mind them saying there's a reason he's not going to tell us his name because that lets me wonder about what it is. Mm-hmm. But and 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 that wonder is fine. Um, I don't hate mystery boxes. What I hate is you're telling a story and you don't give me a satisfying payoff. But the doctor's name is not part of the story. It's a background right. element. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And uh, same I thing th- with why he left Gallifrey. I don't need an answer to that. I like wondering about it. And I like mm-hmm. them giving us little hints and clues, but but never anything definitive, because why he left Gallifrey is not the point of the story they're telling. Right. If they if right. they set up a big thing of, OK, now we're going to tell you why he left Gallifrey and then they are ambiguous at the end. That's what I hate. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, in fact, I might even hate it as much as just you know, taking the mystery, the whole mystery of it away and saying, well, this is why I left Gallifrey. And no, that's no longer interesting part of the yeah. show because mm-hmm. that mystery. So at some one point he uh, he says in response to the veil uh, in his many monologues with it. I'm not scared of hell. It's just heaven for bad people. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, mm, not quite. <laughs> that is. Uh, I, I appreciated the line, though. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't. It's it's, I don't think the line is factually true, but it's it, it's, it, it's 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 true enough. And given the doctor's perspective on things, it's like, OK, that's his rationalization. And mm-hmm. it's funny. Right. Yeah. Um. He he also says at one point, no one remembers being born, which true, uh, and no one remembers dying. I know, I know. I thought the same thing. There are a lot of there are a lot of apparitions that would disagree with that, right? And well, I in, think those, in, in NDE experiencers, right, yeah. right. And I think those kind of go together in the sense of I think the doctor's basically saying. There isn't really an afterlife. There is nothing after to worry about, well, to he, remember. No, he, he's ambiguous because he op- he's open to the possibility he might be in hell and he's open to the possibility of heaven. And he's also open to the yeah. possibility there is no afterlife. I guess so. I guess so. I mean, no one also, remembers- we, we have that whole episode where he's open to the possibility of an afterlife where they go searching for Danny Pink. Yeah, sure. Sure. That's true. Um, I guess like no one remember. Uh, yeah. I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what he means by no one remembers dying. But yeah, I, I, in this life, you know, yeah, because it's the end of this life in theory. OK, OK. Um, so uh, see, I have a again, note here. It's, again, it's just a clever, clever Moffat yep. line. So the whole thing about the bird, which leads him to the wall, um, you know, in the room to, in room 12, which is you know clearly reference to him being the 12th doctor mm-hmm. um, is a reference to a Brothers Grimm story, The Shepherd Boy. Mm-hmm. The king asks the shepherd boy about the length of eternity. The boy talks of a mountain of diamond that takes an hour to climb and an hour to walk around. And every hundred years, a bird comes to sharpen its beak on the mountain. And once he wears the mountain down, the first second of eternity will have passed. And I, and so it's to explain what eternity is. And mm-hmm. actually, as a poetic explanation of eternity, that's not a bad explanation. Because really, that's the idea is eternity is endless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're kind of getting a 
glimpse of that in this episode, which is an interesting way for a TV show to try to portray the idea of eternity. I think other shows have tried to do it too. The Good Place being an example of of it um, doing an unsatisfying job. The, well, right. no, okay. So the, the resolution, the yeah. the finale of the Good Place is lame, but yeah. up to that point, it's a really great series. It is. Yeah. Yes, I, I I agree, and I don't want to spoil it uh, for anyone, but. Uh, yes, the finale has a pretty lame explanation of of eternity, and, but and this, that's not uncommon. You know, yeah. the the part like the very ending of Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica is like that. I've mm-hmm. noticed lots of series are good build up, but when they do their finale, it tends to not be as high quality. Yeah, that's the landing the plane is the hardest part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, I think this story as a as an idea, like apart from the punching the wall. For four billion years, I think the story of the of the of the ex- explaining eternity through this, I think that's kind of a cool little note. I really liked that. Yeah, um, it, it, it's a, because we are finite beings with finite imaginations. It's hard for us to truly imagine what eternity is going to be like. You know, mm-hmm. it's just we we can't even for many of us, and if not all of us, I don't, I can't speak for everyone, but I know for many, I'm sure, um, even the idea that. The you know there while there's an end to created universe if you will you know where there are stars and things like that but that doesn't mean that there's a wall there and there's nothing beyond that wall you know that right. it, there's still empty space if you will beyond that is is would be hard to comprehend or yeah, that there could it, be another set of galaxies and stuff beyond that somewhere or anything like that. Eternity freaks me out, and I try not to think about it. Yeah, <laughs> eternity and infinity. Like it hurts. It hurts my brain. It gives me anxiety. So I try not to think too much about it. It's just. It's, I know it's me. I know some people love the idea, but I, <laughs> my brain starts turning, and I do. Oh, uh, so that's so, where you get into what is a Zeno's paradox, where that you can have an infinite of space between two points because you could keep subdividing it. Yes. Yeah, Zeno. Zeno wasn't a modern mathematician. No. Well, you could you could also you could also prove that theory wrong by punching him in the nose. Because <laughs> eventually you get to the point of yes, yeah, yeah, of, of exactly. the, yeah, yeah. Um, so when the doctor finally breaks through and uh, chisels his way uh, out of the 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 the, the, the confession dial, um, he encounters a boy, shepherd boy, maybe. There's, there's, there's a remarkable number of people on Gallifrey who are uh, non technological, shall we say? Right, yeah, uh, that's the keep, original Gallifreyans, right. right? And there's a and then there's a culture the, of the, the advanced the, time lords. Yeah, the time lords are the elite, and we we met them originally way back in Classic Who, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so he tells the boy to run to the city. Um, he knows what they did, and if they ask who he is, to tell them he went the long way round, which is a reference to the Day of the Doctor episode. Mm-hmm. Where the doctor said, at last I know where I'm going, where I've always been going, home, the long way round. Yeah, but uh, even though Stephen Moffat is calling back that line from the end of the day of the doctor, he never said that to the Time Lords. They, they're they not going to know what that means. <laughs> well, even even the confession dial, when he, the doctor first sees the wall, it flashes home. And of course, he thinks it's the TARDIS behind there. Right, right. That's true. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, that the, that he, he his his idea of home is the TARDIS, not Gallifrey, which is an interesting idea. Um, and so the doctor says, you know, tell them the hybrid is me, and the intentionally ambiguous thing. Uh, so one thing that I let me left with is why is it called Heaven Sent? Yeah, I, I, it's <laughs> yeah. just a setup for the next title, Hell Bent. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I could. I kept trying to think of a reason why, but I just feel like maybe Moffat had hell bent for the next one. So therefore, yeah. heaven sent will be the first one. Yeah, pretty much. That's too bad. Uh, yeah, I like if you're going to have like a a name like that, you have a reason for it. But I guess it ought to mean something. But it's yeah. they. I mean, you could say is like Clara heaven sent or what? Or you know is. The image of Clara in his mind, heaven sent or, you know, but they, they never establish it. So it's it it's that's just bare speculation. They they really don't provide us anything to explain the title. By the way, speaking of his yep. mental image of Clara. So there's some crossover in this episode with another Stephen Moffat production of the time, which was Sherlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things yes. that 
that Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss did in their modern adaptation of Sherlock Holmes is they gave Sherlock what in the series is referred to as a mind palace. Now, this is a this is a variation on on what historically has been known as a memory theater in a memory theater you it was a it was a technique for that was used for a long time by people in like the middle ages to remember things and you would imagine a familiar place like your house and you would mentally walk through your house and associate and as you did that you would find objects that were the things you were trying to remember. So like if you're trying to remember an elephant, a donkey and a cow in that order, you might imagine approaching your house and there's an elephant on your lawn. And then when you open the door and you come into your little vestibule, you might find there's a donkey. And then when you walk past that into your kitchen, you find a cow and you can thus remember elephant, donkey, cow in that order. Hmm. Well, they, they gave Sherlock uh, essentially an upgraded uh, memory theater, which he calls his mind palace, that he uses for a couple of purposes. Um, one of them, the main one, is he uses it to deduce things. So he'll go into his mind palace and, like, recreate a crime scene right. and and run scenarios in the crime scene trying to figure out what happened. He also sometimes uses it for emotional control. There's there's one episode where he gets shot and he and he's terrified and he's he realizes if he doesn't slow down his heart rate, he's going to bleed out. And so he uses his mind palace to create a calming environment that lets him survive long enough. Right. Um, in, incidentally, we were on Mysterious World. We're going to have an episode on synesthesia that's coming up. And I happen to be a synesthete and I actually have basically a mind palace, um, which I use to perform different functions. It's kind of, I don't call it a mind palace. It's like a, it's like a holographic augmented reality, virtual workspace that (laughs) surrounds me. And I use it multiple times a day for different things, but we'll be talking about that in the synesthesia episode coming up. (laughs) So one thing I want to kind of go back to is the skulls that, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the billions of skulls that end up there, oh, each oh. one. I'm, I'm sorry, forgive me, but I, I needed to cross connect it to Doctor Who. In this episode, the doctor has a mind TARDIS. Right, right. That he, he retreats to to solve problems. And he's got a mental image of Clara in there that also helps. Although, except in one scene at the very end, he doesn't see Clara face to face. He just sees her back and hears her writing on a blackboard. Right. But at, at one point, he this this connects up with your skulls that you're about to talk about. Mm. At one point, the the doctor is trapped against a wall by the veil and he leaps out of the window mm-hmm. and to jump into the ocean. And as he's falling, he he retreats to his mind TARDIS and starts trying to solve the problem of how am I going to survive? And um, and he says, and this is actually they touched on this in The Magician's Apprentice and The Witch's Familiar with Missy and, and Clara mm-hmm. were talking about this. The doctor always assumes he's he's going to survive. And in this, as the doctor is falling and narrating, it, he, he says, imagine you've already survived. And I thought, oh, that's like the Bingston energy healing method. If you're if you're Bill Bingston, it it devised this method of of trying to psychokinetically heal people where instead of if they got a broken or a a strained knee, you don't think about how to fix the knee. You think about them playing tennis on the other side of the knee being fixed Mm. and you let your subconscious figure out how they get to that point. And it's kind of like the doctor. Okay, assume you've survived and and then you'll work out how you manage to do that. How do you right. fix your knee? Step one, your subconscious gets your conscience to get call the ambulance. Step <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, you're right. So the skulls um, yeah. were so he he jumps into the ocean and he finds a big pile of skulls underneath. Yeah. And the skulls were modeled on on uh, Peter Capaldi's actual head, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they they actually kind of tell us at one point that the skull is the doctor's uh, mm-hmm. because we have this scene transition from. A skull sitting on one of the battlements in the crenellation. Um, and then it 
it fades, it dissolves to the doctor's face. Yep. And so they're kind of like, it's kind of funny that in retrospect, they're basically telling us what's going on. Uh, and if you're clever right. enough, more clever than I was, you would probably figure at that point that the skull is the doctor's and you figure it out from there. Yeah, but It's also shaped like Peter Capaldi's head, if you imagine it without skin. Yep. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, they modeled it on his head. Um, so any other notes on this, Father Corey? Uh, just one thing I thought of during the uh, while we're recording here. It's like, okay, so you've got this giant wall you want to break through. Why are you using a fist when you have shovels mm. in mm-hmm. the building? Go back, grab a shovel. And there's probably other implements in the other rooms as well. Go back and grab one. That, that shovel might, instead of being 2 billion years, might be 1 billion years. <laughs> or, or how about this? You've got a transmat in the castle. Why don't you just transmat yourself onto the other side of the wall and you can be done in five minutes once you reprogram it. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, yeah, even as you're dying, re, you know, like the whole, like he has to use his regeneration energy. So just reprogram it so that the energy doesn't transmit him into the tube, but outside, he won't have any memory of being inside there, but you'll be outside. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Good luck. Ruin the plot. <laughs> How about you, Jimmy? Any final thoughts? Nah. Okay. It's, it's an okay episode. It just doesn't wow me. Right. Uh, let's get to our feedback. Our first bit of feedback comes from our recent third doctor discussion on uh, Carnival of Monsters. Flying Car 100 on YouTube writes, I'm a millennial and I have definitely used cassette tapes. And okay. that's a reference to the fact that uh, we, we mentioned that they used the cassette tape in the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that doesn't surprise me since cassette tapes and eight tracks and records yeah. have all come back among millennials and Gen now- Y and Z. Now, if it was if it was Gen Z, I would say, but did you use them unironically? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I like there's an old episode of Third Rock from the Sun where the aliens are. And this was, you know, a series in the 90s. Oh, yeah. It starred John Great. Lithgow. And it was very funny. And it, it was during the era when um, when CDs were the big yeah. thing and compact discs. And um, and there's one episode where the aliens who are our main characters on the show are musing about Earth and they're saying, you know, it's a pity this planet has never discovered the superior sound of vinyl. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, It it is said that you had to actually define what CD was. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, certificate of deposit, you know. Yeah. (laughs) We had these discs. So, um. Mark Gillies, 1970, on YouTube writes, this was the first episode I ever saw with a doctor other than Tom Baker. I was in another town, and their their PBS was showing the third doctor. I was also happy to see Ian Martyr, Harry Sullivan, in the episode. Always liked Harry Sullivan. Did you know that Ian Martyr wrote several Doctor Who novels for Target? Which I gather is Target Publishing, not the department stores. Correct. Uh, uh, he wrote the adaptation of Ark in Space and also an original story, Harry Sullivan's War. It follows Harry working for MI5. It's pretty good. And Oh, go ahead. I read it while on my confirmation retreat, really enjoyed it. And I also just read that Ian Martyr was originally cast as Mike Yates, but had to decline because of previous commitments. Well, I'm glad that he, he had to decline because um, I I prefer Ian Martyr not having... The same fate as Mike Yates. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, um, the, it, it's it, Harry Sullivan's War is an interesting, interesting reading choice for a confirmation retreat. Yeah, I was thinking that was um, very spiritual, but hey. you know, but different strokes for different folks. Um, one, he also uh, Ian Martyr also co-authored a book before his death with Tom Baker, which has just recently been published. It was like an unpublished manuscript for decades, but um, it's been published now. I think it's called Doctor Who and the Scratch Man. Oh, Oh, I didn't realize Ian Martyr co-wrote that Mm -hmm. with him. Yeah, he at least co-plotted it or something. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that was published a couple years ago, I Mm want to say. Yeah, it was a few years ago. Um, I, I was going to say that uh, I, I'm sure I brought some illicit, re- not illicit, uh, non-spiritual reading with me on my confirmation retreat in high school. Well, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not in a position to judge. I mean, I have and I'll, I'll do this deliberately. Like if I've met Eucharistic Adoration, I've listened to, you know, through headsets. I've mm-hmm. I, I've listened to A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking or, you know, uh, The Universe in a Nutshell 
by Stephen Hawking um, as a way of appreciating God's creation while I'm sitting here by learning about it as I'm sitting here adoring God. And one could do the same thing with a fictional experience. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what we do here is we talk mm-hmm. about the, all that is good and true and beautiful in works of fiction and connect it back to, yep. you know, the depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, then our next bit of feedback comes from our discussion of Mission to the Unknown, which is the recreation of the first Doctor Era story that has since yep. been lost. And this was a, a modern recreation. Uh, Andrew Ireland via YouTube writes, hi, great discussion. Glad you liked our episode recreation. And I should point out that Andrew Ireland was the guy who had the original idea of making Mm -hmm. the recreation way back in 2013 and then got permission for that to happen when he was teaching at the University of Central Lancashire in 2018 and ended up being the director of the episode as well. So I think that's the first time we've ever had someone who's been involved in the making of one of the episodes we discussed Mm -hmm. comment on it. So I was very pleased. That's That's great. That's awesome. And now, Andrew, uh, you did a really great job. I was really intrigued by the recreation you did. Now you need to do all 12 parts of the Daleks Master Plan. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say make Marco Polo, but... (laughs) No, no, no. Daleks Master Plan. You've already got the costumes. And the sets, it flows right out of, at least a bunch of the sets, it flows right out of, of the Dalek cutaway. I hear David Bradley's available. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So thank you all for your feedback. We really do appreciate it. And uh, now we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Mark C., Elizabeth B., Zach W., Gyro C., and Adam F. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the Secrets of Doctor Who, and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Zyman Yannick, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. What did you think of the 12th Doctor story, Heaven Sent? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. And you can watch The Secrets of Doctor Who on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia and leave a comment there. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing The Fifth Doctor story, which is appropriate enough, The Five Doctors. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> uh, that was an anniversary story, and given that the 60th anniversary is coming right up, it's a it's a good time for it. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aitken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest, and remember, it's funny, the day you lose someone isn't the worst. At least you get something to do. It's all the days they stay dead. Yeah.